Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as we worship and fellowship together. To find out more about Waterbrook, go to www.waterbrook.church. Take your Bibles, if you have it, and turn to uh, Genesis chapter 3. And as you know, if you've read your Bible, this is where it all goes south. Um, I'm not sure what that saying actually means. If you live in the south, that, that might be... <laughs> But it ain't good. <laughs> and uh, the only way you can uh, even chuckle at going into Genesis 3 is communion. Um, because it is horrific and the consequences are infinite and eternal. And yet there's great hope even in Genesis 3. Isn't the marvelous thing that when the calamity comes upon humanity, when Adam as our head falls into sin and brings great sin great condemnation upon us all, God is at work. And uh, Genesis 3 ends with the hope of God, even as he uh, moves Adam and Eve and bans them from the Garden of Eden. And no one has been back in Eden since. And you and I live outside of the Garden of Eden, but there is an Eden coming. There is a new creation, and we are on our way home. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we read for wisdom, we read for insight into our human nature, but let me remind you again in Genesis 3 that what is happening in the Bible and what is in all of the Bible and what is happening in the book of Moses is that you and I are being divinely set up. We are being set up to move out into the mission of God. Even the story of the fall is designed to strengthen the church. Or it wouldn't be in the Bible. All scriptures God breathed, right? And profitable for teaching, rebuking, correction, and training in righteousness. The word of God is written, uh, the whole history of the people of God is written in order to equip us and encourage us and warn us. And so the reality is we are not inclined to move out, are we? We are inclined to settle down. We are perpetually seeking Eden on earth. And Genesis 3 tells us that ain't going to happen by divine decree. And that God's intention is to send us out. So here's what I want to do. I, I, we're going to look at Genesis 3. I'm going to encourage you to reread Genesis 3, but I'm actually going to read from Joshua chapter 1. So I want you to take your Bibles, just a few pages, and you have some of that right there in front of you so you can look at this text. Actually, maybe you just need to look there. I forgot to put it there. Well, no, go to Joshua 1. I want to read a little bit further. So the way the Bible, the Bible begins is with Moses' first five books, the Pentateuch, the five, first five books. And the question is, why did God have Moses write the Pentateuch? And if you go to the end of Deuteronomy, read the last couple chapters, you can do that this week, and go into Joshua, what we have is God is, through Moses, preparing to launch the people of God into the promised land. And so at the end, this is all building up of the history of what God has done, the commands and the law, the covenant that God established with the people of Israel, the purpose for which God established it and their failure to walk in it, all of that catastrophe and story is in the first five books because Moses, amongst his generation, will not go into the promised land because they were given the opportunity. And what did they do? They bailed. They came to the edge of the promised land and they looked at the foe in the land rather than the God who called them. And because Joshua and Caleb were willing to follow, Joshua gets the opportunity to take over for Moses and go into the promised land. And I say all of this because the book of, of Moses at the beginning of the Bible is a, pre a precipitation a, pre a preparation, sorry, for the gospel in the New Testament where you and I are launched into the world. And we are sent to go and make disciples of what? All nations. What, are we, what do we tend to do? We want to stay home and find our Garden of Eden. 
And what, we're, what we do in our struggle, of course, what was the fear of Israel when they came to the edge of the promised land? Their fear was the enemy would destroy them. Isn't that what we often think? We fear the foe rather than get our eyes on God. And so the, the, if you were reading the book of Moses, if you were Joshua walking with Moses... And then as you were being launched into, they still have to take the land. You're being launched into the land, what would you expect God to say to you? Let's listen to what God says to him. And we'll get a sense of what's happening here. Why don't we jump in, in uh, let's just start at the beginning. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, All the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Can I just stop and pause there? Can you just drink a little bit from that verse? Do you believe God will ever leave you or forsake you? Jesus said, go and make all disciples of all nations, baptizing um, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Is that where he stopped? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So here is God speaking to Joshua and says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's the fuel in the tank of his following. Is that good news for you today? Wherever he's calling you to go, wherever he's called you to live and serve, is it not good news to you that he will never leave you or forsake you as you follow him? Where's your hope? Your hope's in the Lord, right? That's what we've been singing about. He is our living hope. So let me shift gears. Verse 6, be what? Strong and courageous. So you need strength and courage. Where does your strength and courage from? Your strength and courage comes from the Lord who will never leave you nor forsake you. Not the power of positive thinking, not our statistical abilities to analyze the culture and advance the cause. The hope that we have is in the Lord who has said he will never leave us or forsake us and he will build his church in the gates of hell. He is our hope. His word is reliable. His promises never fail. So here's the exhortation in verse 7. Be strong, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. How are you going to do this, Joshua? By taking me at my word. So, friends, here's what's being taught all the way through the Bible. The work of God is done by the word of God. Expect... God to do his work through his people by his word. That's what's being taught. That will not go away. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 1 when he announces the gospel? I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is what? The power of God unto salvation. And so in verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be not... um, Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. Church, do not be frightened. Do be not dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What is the challenge for the church? 
Right. The challenge for the church is to believe the word of God and to believe that the God of the word will work through the word of God. You don't have to do the heavy lifting. You don't have to win the victories. You don't have to do the promise keeping. He's the promise keeper who accomplishes. So we'll go to the next slide here, Sam. Sam was nervous back there being my point guard today, like most people are. And I just tell him, just go for it. Who knows what I'm going to say along the way. But here's what I wanted you to see. The mission of God demands that the people of God defend fully on the power of God working through the word of God, the gospel. Got that? Think it over, reiterate it. What the Bible begins with is Genesis chapter 1, when God speaks, let there be light, what is there? Light. God's word is good. Genesis chapter 2, he knows. So that's the goodness and the power of God. Genesis chapter 2, we saw the wisdom of God. God knows what you need, and God knows what you do not need. And what you do not need are the good things becoming God things. Right? So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is right smack dab in the garden, not because it's wrong, but because if you partake of something that God does not want for you, you take in that a good thing that becomes more important than God in your life becomes an idol, a destructive thing, and we need to be rescued. So when we get to chapter 3, what is being reiterated? What are we being taught under God as he inspires Moses by the Holy Spirit to write this down for a people that are going to be pushed out of their comfort zone, out into a dangerous, opposing enemy's culture, unfamiliar territory? What is he teaching them? Trust in God and in his word. That the Word of God, we have to trust the Word of God to do the work of God. I'm going to say that a million times. No, I'm not, but you know what I'm saying. Over and over again, you and I need to trust the Word of God. We need to understand if a faultless Adam and Eve in a perfect Garden of Eden couldn't be faithful to a good and loving God, we dare not attempt to fix our broken world and our broken lives in our own strength. Isn't that what we see? Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and they blew it. Don't think you can handle life and, and the call of God in your own strength. If, if they couldn't do it in a perfect world, are you going to do it in a fallen world? Being fallen people, we need and we have. I want to underline that. We need and we have a gracious God and a glorious hope in the work and person of Jesus Christ. So the challenge for us in all of this is to trust that God is on the move. He said it, that God will do his work, and that we simply have to trust in the word of God and deliver that word as we go out and minister in his name. Do you believe the word of God? Do you believe Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against him? Do you believe that? Then, then see, that's the, that's the anchor and that's the hope that liberates us to follow him. And you know, all we need to hear is him say, I will do it. The scene in, in um, the lion and the witch in the wardrobe where um, Mr. Beaver says to the kids, Aslan is on the move. You, ever, you remember that scene? And um, Lewis, as he describes the children's reaction, says there is something marvelously transformative when you believe that truth, that, that Christ is resurrected and reigning and he's on the move. Don't read the news. Hear the gospel. So let me read you this little scene. And now a various... Okay, so the Mr. Beaver says... Aslan's on the move, perhaps has already landed, and this is the description. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than or none of the children knew who what uh, who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. 
Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something that you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it has enormous meaning. Either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put in words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get back into that dream. You ever had a good dream like that? It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. You know what's being said there? is against everything that we're inclined to think based on our experiences. All you need to hear is that Christ is risen and reigning and building his church. And the question for you and I is, in all our brokenness, in all our sorrow, in all our struggle, in all our confusion, what does that do to the soul that believes that message? Right? And that has a powerful transformative effect. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So let me just ask this question this morning and get you to think about it for a little bit. What went wrong in the Garden of Eden? In Genesis chapter 3, what went wrong? What's the simple answer? They didn't trust in the Word of God and the God of the Word. And the shift is subtle. The shift is subtle. Okay, so um, let, let's go to Genesis 3, and let's look at this scene. How does it begin? This is good, this is good writing. They're in the garden, but there's a slithery snake. Right? There's something happening in the garden. Now, the serpent was more crafty than... Other beast of the field, other, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And suddenly there's a dark shadow that moves into the garden scene. We know who this is. This is Satan, as he's revealed in Scripture. And he comes in and he says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You got a few questions here? You probably have lots of questions here. Here's a couple questions I have in this text. Number one, where is Adam? That's a big question at this moment in time. Where is Adam? And secondly, as you're looking at this, what did she say? She added. Serpent comes along and says, Did God say you shouldn't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And she said, he said, God said, you shall not eat or touch. Did God say that? I want you to backtrack into chapter 2. Let's go back to the scene where the command was given to, God, to Adam by God in chapter 2, verse 15. It says, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, chapter 2, verse 15, to work it and to keep it. And the, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So let me just ask this question in this text of Scripture. In chapter 2, where's Eve? That's crucial. Where's Eve? She's not created yet. So this is how it's being described in creation. God makes Adam and he gives Adam the responsibility to teach Eve about what to eat or not eat. 
So she's not there yet. When we get to chapter 2, we find out Eve has been taught. Has she been taught right? So here we go. This is, I, I will admit, there's a little speculation going on here. But I have, let's just say, I think it's at least somewhat sanctified suspicion. I think possibly, underline possibly, I think possibly Adam felt the weight of the warning. And when he communicated it to Eve, he did what we do. He embellished. At least she does that. I suspect Adam, because she didn't know anything about this. Till Adam communicated, and if that's the case, Adam communicated the warning to her, you can imagine Adam not wanting her or himself to die. So he embellished. What did he do? He added an extra layer of protection. He said, do not, okay, possibly he said, do not eat of the fruit or even touch why would he do that? Make double sure. What is he actually doing in that moment? Changing God's word. He's adding to God's word in order to accomplish God's will. Isn't that easy to do? Isn't it easy to do to add to the word of God in order to accomplish the will of God? But where is our faith when we do that? When you add to the word of God in order to accomplish the will of God, the object is yourself and not the Lord. And what he did wrong in his teaching, and this is the thing, we do this, we do this sometimes as parents, right? We think if we put enough protective fences around our kids, they'll be okay. Let me warn you, Satan can come through your best fences. Right? So it, I, I think it's great to homeschool your kids, but my dear friend, Satan can come over that wall. Right? The enemy can come through. We can say we'll get them with the right friends, in the right school, with the right church, with all the right, all the right stuff. In all of those things, what we may, in fact, we may set up the protective wall around our kids that will put them in the right place and then be absent when our kids need us most. Adam was trusting in the wall of his law, but he wasn't present to walk her to the Lord. That's where he went wrong. Because what should, that, what, what should have Adam said to her? We need the Lord. We can trust in God and his word. He should have said, before we listen to Sneaky Snake, let's talk to the one who made us and see what should be done. So here's what I want to say, and this is reiterated all the way through the Bible. The faulty logic of legalism, a bad fence, this is the belief if we can just control our environment, we'll be okay. That's all over the culture, right? If we can just make an idealistic world, if we can get the social structure done right in the world, if everything's in the right place, we'll live happily ever after. How's that gone? How are we after millenniums of political and, and moral and social cycle, psychological adjustments. How are we doing? Every generation thinks, well, up to the last generation, every generation has thought we can make the world a better place or begun to. Now I think despair has fallen in. And now you hope, you know, Greta Thunberg, you hope that it's not too late. To turn the whole thing around. But where's the weight of the shoulder? Where's the weight? Whose shoulders is the weight of fixing and protecting and safety placed? Mankind. And so I just want to at least say this that this is this is what religion does. Religion replaces relationship. Religion comes along and says, that's what I mean by religion, if we structure things in a right way, we can keep people on the right path. And I say this, if they couldn't do it in the Garden of Eden, we're not going to do it now that we're out. Because the enemy, as Peter warns, 
wanders around like what? A roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so, you know, Jesus will confront his religious leaders in his day when they come along and say, why are your disciples eating without going through the proper religious hand-washing ceremonies? And Jesus says, you guys honor me with, quotes Isaiah, you honor me with your lips, but what's far from me? Your heart. This is all religion, external religion, hoping to deliver you, not the inside. And later on, when he confronts them about how they treat their parents, he says this in Mark 7, verse 13, um, thus making void the word of God by your tradition. You've added the word of God in the name of protecting the people of God, and you've stopped trusting the God who made you and delivered you. That's a challenging statement, isn't it? Because isn't it easier to put in our mind to put up protective walls than to teach our kids to trust Jesus? Isn't it easier to kind of... And then we have the coronavirus. Isn't the coronavirus a powerful illustration of how good we are at quarantining problems? So yesterday I get a text from Kath because... When SARS broke out several years ago, my, uh, the hospital where my daughter Kathy works was the first hospital in Canada that had a case of SARS. So yesterday, because she's an ER nurse, said, first case, first case of coronavirus in Toronto, North York, Sunnybrook Hospital, which is the closest hospital to her hospital. Right? And you watch what's going on. Everybody's watching what's going on. They're watching disease break up. You know what? Have we fixed the world? Have we conquered death? Have we done it in our own strength? Absolutely not. And, it, you know, if, if you're going to move out into the world, you've got to start out with this. There is no mechanism by which the church in its own strength can change the whole world. We can't isolate. And so what, sometimes what happens to us is we try to make our church into this quarantined little community. Right? Little safe little community where we won't be influenced. My dear friends, that'll kill what God's called you to do. You were called to go into the world. And so we can't add protective laws. We can only preach the gospel. That's what we're called to do. We've got to trust the God of the Word. When I was up in Canada, I had beehives and, and this was the thing that was remarkable to me, was that when I started, up there, there are a lot of bears. We would get bears in our yard all the time, much to Mary Ann's chagrin. In fact, our first meal at our, our house after we got married, we're sitting there having dinner, and I can see a black bear walking across the backyard behind the fence. I said, honey, look at the gate in the, at the fence uh, in the backyard. She goes, why? She's looking at it, and then she, her, her first reaction was, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, up there we'd have these beehives, I'd have my beehives, and we would put um, wa- electric fence around our beehives to keep the bears out. And I thought to myself, really? I mean, this thing's got this thick fur and stuff like that, and people would say, put a little tag and put peanut butter on it, so when they touch it with their tongue, it'll go, Zzz, you know, and then they'll run away. I tell you, it just depends on how hungry the bear is. Because I had a friend who's got a lot more beehives than me, and when that bear wanted in in the fall before he needed to hibernate, that electric fence was nothing. He was coming through. He, had the, he destroyed, I forget how many hives he had in this one spot. The bear destroyed them all. My dear friends, our legalism, our safe protection, our sheltering our kids and our family and all these things is no protection against Satan. Didn't protect him in the garden. It won't protect now. The only thing we have is the promise of God and the word of God that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that's the danger we've got to watch in our hearts, right? Right? We want to shelter ourselves rather than follow God. Isn't that what got Israel into trouble? They were afraid. The enemy was big. Let me just tell you this. The enemy is big, but my God is bigger. He is a creature. My God's the creator. So let me just walk through a couple of things here. What does legalism, unfortunately, do? It'll come, Sam. There it is. Good. 
Legalism is an attempt to religiously save ourselves. It is to look to additional rules in order to stay loyal to God instead of looking to the Lord himself. And here are some of the implications. Number one, and most important, it corrupts the word of God. Adding to the word of God is undermining the word of God. You got that? Why? Because you're moving your faith from the revealed word of God and the God of the word, and you're adding to it your two cents worth. That's why it's hard to preach. That's why it's a scary thing to preach. Because even when I'm talking about Adam and where, where was Adam and all that, I've got to be real careful to add the word possibly because I need to say it is not Kevin Dibley's opinion that ever matters. When I went and started pastoring at 24 years of age, that Joshua 1, 8, and 9 was put as a banner over um, the, the downstairs hall of the church because I had to say to myself, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you are careful to do according to all that's written in it, and that way you'll be successful and prosperous. Dibley, nobody needs to hear your opinion because my opinion may undermine the authority of the word of God. Here's the other thing it does. It exalts the capability of humans. You cannot be someone's savior. Your wisdom cannot add to the wisdom of God. It'll undermine their confidence. It exalts the capability. It distorts the character of God. Just imagine thinking that God had not said enough in the Garden of Eden to keep them safe. Isn't that what Adam was saying when he adjusted, if that's what he said? Isn't that what Eve was at least saying when she said you're not even to touch it or go near it or taste it? What is it? That God kind of didn't have it clear enough to keep us safe. It's God's it's God's fault we're not safe in the garden. It shifts our, way, our faith away from the Lord to ourselves. Here's the big danger. Now I'm thinking I need to be careful not to do this and go near this. So I'm relying on my what? My own strength. When in fact what I need to be doing, I need to be hearing, heeding, listening, crying out. If I feel weak, where should I go? Run to the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. Seek the Lord. It, we need, see, this is the danger. We add legalism to keep our kids safe. We add legalism to, to, to make our world safe. But the problem is all our rules are simply relying on my wisdom, my strength, myself, and my dear friend Satan will whoop you on any good day. Any good day. It underestimates the power of Satan and sin. I add Satan and sin because we're reading it this side of the garden. And my dear friends, Satan will take any of us down on any day. And sin is greater than me on any day. Sin is described in what Jesus said, if any of you sin, he's a slave to sin. I'm saying that's apart from Jesus. <laughs> that's apart from the cross. That's apart from deliverance. My dear friends, not one of you can do what God's called you to do in your strength. And, and you don't need a perfect environment, right? If, if, you, if I put, you know, wasn't that what Luther was doing? Let's just get myself in a monastery. <laughs> How did that go? Right? The problem with Luther in the monastery is Luther was in the monastery. The problem of trying to find a perfect church is you just came. <laughs> right? Isn't that the truth? It's just the, the problem is us. The problem is sin. The problem is the foe. My hope is in myself. No. The answer is that before I had even entered into sin, before Adam and Eve entered into sin, they were creatures. In God they lived and moved and had their being. They were designed to be dependent. They could not live in their own strength. That was without sin. They were not made to go it alone. That Jesus, Andy's been teaching on this in Corinthians, Jesus sustains all creation, right? So my ability to live and move and have any being is totally dependent upon God. Who am I to think that I might create a self-sustaining environment by which I no longer need to lean on God? 
finally, it neglects. This is really, I want to I drive this home for Waterbrook this morning. It neglects the res- interpersonal responsibility and vigilance. Where was Adam? Or to use Cain and Abel language, which we'll see soon next week, um, am I my brother's keeper? You see, once we think we've got a quarantined environment, we don't have to be around, right? I got my kids in a safe place. I got my family in a safe environment. I've got myself isolated from all bad influences. We're okay, right? We're not okay. I mean, especially now, at this juncture in history, I believe what the gospel does is put us in a situation where we are called to love one another, build one another up, equip one another, serve one another, help one another. You know how many one another's are in the Bible? You have been redeemed not to be a self-reliant, independent American. You've been redeemed to be the church of God in the cause of God in a world that needs the God who saves. And so that's what happens with legalism. Legalism isolates people and gives them a false sense of security in their environment rather than a divine sense of dependence and mutual responsibility for one another. I need you. I need, I need the worship team to point me to Jesus. I need you to sing of Jesus. I need you to pray for me. I need you. That'll be all the... Because you are... Christ's body. Do we not need each other? How desperately do we need each other? What, what's our tendency when we're hurting, though? Isolate. Anybody feel like isolating? Anybody feel like isolating right now? Right. Okay, you do, don't you? Isn't that the greatest danger? We just want to pull back when, in fact, what we need is we need one another to help us believe the word and the promise of God in the gospel. I need you to tell me that the sin, all my sins, what can wash away my sin? Say it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. I need to hear that. I need to hear that. I don't need to hear it just on Sunday. I need to hear it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. That's what, that's what we call legalism puts us out there in, an, in a sanctified environment. My dear friends, there's no sanctified environment. There's only a Savior. It's only a savior. Let's go to the, the next one quick here, Sam. This is the faulty logic of humanism. Satan comes in and lies. What does he say? You will not die. Right? So go to verse 4. After she says you shouldn't eat it or you shouldn't eat it or touch it, the serpent says, You won't die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like what? God knowing good and evil. So this is the lie, not that you need a sanctified, or, you know, a, a sterilized environment. What it's saying is that what you need is education. If you just have the knowledge that God has, right? If you know what God has, you can be like God. You don't need God. See what's been going on here? You don't need God. Do you remember Jesus in the wilderness when he's tempted? What does Satan come along and do? You don't need God. I can do for you what God will do for you. Are you hungry? Well, just say to these stones, right? Become bread. What does Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So what's going on here is the the enemy comes along and he says to Eve, Eve, 
You, you eat this, God, God's just holding out on you. God is ripping you off. Every generation is led to believe that the generation before them is the responsible for the mess the world's in. Now, if we have just a little more education, we have a little more information, let me tell you this. We have more information, more data, more technological advances. We have, I mean, I'm amazed at what some of you are learning in ninth grade. I think we learned it in... In, in Canada in 13th grade. There was a 13th grade, by the way, when I went to school. Um, but, you know, some of the things you learn in ninth grade, and you go along and think, man, all the data, all the... And let me just ask you the question. Have we got it so the world's a safe place? Have we got it so that evil doesn't exist? Have we ruled out all the tyrants, all the demagogues, all the death? All the viruses, we got it. Have we, have we figured it out? Are we going to get there through education, information, so that you and I can do our thing and live our way without God? Guess what? It's a lie. It's a lie because you and I need the life, the protection, the salvation, the deliverance of God. You know what? Knowledge is power. It's true. But what does power do? Power corrupts, and what's absolute power do? So here's the lie that freaks out, I think, some of you young people. You are continually being told that you have enough information to get to the place in your life that you want to get to. So I listened to um, a podcast from Danica Patrick the other day, is that how you say her name, race car driver? And uh, this is her slogan at the beginning um, of her podcast. She says this, I believe that each and every one of us has the power within ourselves to create the life that we want. That's what Satan is saying there. She's nice. She's not being mean. She believes that if you only reach down to the resources... Maybe your God-given resources to live the life you want. You can get to the goals you want. I believe that each and every one of us has the power within ourselves to create the life we want. That works on a couch in a condo in Southern California, but it doesn't work in the slums of Calcutta. doesn't work in a cancer ward. Right? How many of us have been there? It is cruel and demonic to say to people, if you only had enough information, if you weren't as ignorant as the last generation, if you, God is actually holding out on you, you can be like God in control of your destiny to do all things you want to do, to be all things you want to be. You know what? We got a whole young people, a group of young people who are growing up with that kind of mindset and wondering why they're failing. I'll tell you why it's failing. It's meant to make you anxious and discouraged and deceived. You are not the captain of your own ship and the master of your own fate. You are a created creature in the image of God meant to find your life and hope in the God who made you. That's the truth. And so let me just walk it through again and give you the implications of this lie. It's not just environment and it's not education. Sam, can you? There it is. First thing that this is, this is a direct attack on God. Right? Hath God said? We have a, we have a culture that's like every other culture uh, down through the ages where it's God's word that is continually attacked. It's racist, it's bigoted, it's oppressive, it's joy killer, it's... it's it's hopeless, it's negative. I mean, who wants to hear about sin? Who wants to hear about Satan? Who wants to hear about death? Who wants to hear about this? Let me tell you this. You're hearing about it every night on the news. The difference is we have a God who's sovereign and saves, right? But it goes against God. Did God really say that? God's lying to you. So we got a whole bunch of people who pick up their Bible these days and think, how can you believe this stuff? And, and the rest of us look and think, well, how are you believing what you're believing? Did you read the news? Have you seen the population? Do you see what's going on? Do we feel more secure now than ever? My goodness. We're drunk. 
We're under a delusion. It's a deception. This is what you've got to understand. Satan is deliberately wanting to undermine the word of God in your life. Because it's the word of God that saves and transforms. It's the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation. Satan wants you to be helpless and hopeless rather than follow God into the place that God... See, that you will never follow God in the mission of his church if you don't believe the promises of God, the power of the gospel, right? (laughs) You'll just come up with your little tweak. You'll come up with your app to make the world a little better place. And how will that go? If you listen to Richard Dawkins or some of these guys, how's it going to go, folks? (laughs) Do our anti-Bible-believing guys have a solution for the problem? No. You know what it is? Bertrand Russell, philosopher from a couple centuries ago. You know what the, the, the great state of honest humanity is? Unyielding despair. Or as Hee Haw used to say. Anybody know what Hee Haw was? Okay. <laughs> do, you, do you quote Hee Haw in a sermon in 2020? Okay, they used to have a song on this show a uh, hundred years ago, which was really hillbilly, and they used to sing, gloom, despair, and agony on me, deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. There you go. That's what I, that was my illustration. That is what the world has to offer. The word has hope and real hope. Living hope. It's a delusion. This is a lie uh, foisted upon humanity. It's a delusion. I am in control. What a joke. If there's anything that's clear in the world, it's chaos theory. Right? The world is in utter chaos, and only God can make order out of chaos. Destruction. Here's the worst part. Satan is not simply trying to get you to believe a lie. Jesus said he was a liar and a murderer. He doesn't want you to believe the word of God because he doesn't want you to go into the world in the name of that gospel because he wants everyone to go to hell where he's going. That's really what's going on here. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So, let me go to the end of Genesis 3. So is that, anybody feeling really encouraged right now? Right? Yeah, <laughs> there's hope here, right? Let's go to the end. What does God do in Genesis 3 at the end, after they eat, after they find themselves naked and ashamed? He comes along and he deals with the situation, and I want you to see and hear the unfathomable love of God. Because what God comes along and he does is he says, this deceiver shall be destroyed. Isn't that the good news? This is that where it starts in Genesis 3, 14. Read this this week. Think through. It says in verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, all the, and, dust you shall eat your, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That is the gospel. This is an announcement that the seed of the woman got this. It's not inconsequential. The seed of the woman shall step on the head of the snake. You ever picked up a snake? If you ever live in the south or you live someplace, when you go to pick up a snake, you step on its head first. But this is not stepping on the head so you can just pick it up and hold it. This is stepping on its head so it's good and dead. And that's what the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, that Jesus came to destroy him who held the power of death, that is, Satan himself. And when he died on the cross, he defeated and destroyed the enemy. This is the promise of the gospel, that the liar would be destroyed, that God would deliver us from him who held the power of death. He is defeated. 
That's the unfathomable love. So here's, let's go to the next um, slide here. Number one, hope. Christ will destroy your enemy. Not you. You don't have to save the world. We have a Savior who has already at the cross defeated the enemy. He decreed, now I want you to notice I got in quotes there. He decreed Satan's destruction by Eve's seed. When does Adam name Eve Eve? In chapter 2, he calls her woman because she was taken from man. At the end of chapter 3, after this announcement, he calls her Eve because what, it, what, does, it, what does Eve mean? Right, it means the giver of life. And what does Adam realize? That the woman has now become the hope. The seed of the woman is now she has now become, out of her will, become the, will come the descendant that will give life where death has come. E naming her Eve is a great name. How many, you know, when you name your children, right? So we've been praying for Maddie's little ones, right? Those are great names. Asher and Winslow. We got an Asher over here somewhere, right? Asher, that's a good name. Good name. Asher, I got a nephew named Asher. You got good names, right? You want to name meaningful names. When he calls her Eve, he is singing out and putting in front of him the promise of the gospel. Life. Life over death. So even in this moment, death doesn't have the final say. Death does not have the final say because he is greater than death. He is the destroyer of the destroyer. One of my favorite books in history, which I just don't advise you to read unless you really like reading long, hard texts, but one of my favorite books is John Owen's book, and one of the reasons I like it is the title, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. That's the title. Puritans always had really long titles. But the beauty of that text is simply this, that when Christ died, death died with Christ. And when he rose, his life became our life. And we were born again to a what? Living hope. So he brings hope. Secondly, hardship. You know what he says in this text? Now Eve, when you have children, how easy is that? Ask the Qualkies this week. Adam, when you go to work, guess what? It's, the soil is going to fight you. Now, I just want to stop and say this about that. Even though that's a curse, and it is a curse, I want to tell you the blessing in it. Because when God evicted them from the garden and cursed the land, he said, you will never be able to honestly believe again that you will be safe in the environment without me. Not until you are redeemed and transformed. One day I'll make all things new and we'll kill the weeds. Right? One day we'll take away the curse. But let me just tell you this. From now on it will be abundantly clear to you that you need me and you cannot go it alone. And if you say I can make my environment and I can build my own world and I can make everything safe and secure, let me just tell you this, this, this reality. My dear friends, it will fight you the whole way because as Augustine discovered, you will be restless until you realize that your only rest is found in Jesus Christ. Come to me, those of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Honor. He dressed them with animal skins. They were embarrassed. They were ashamed. And he covered them with animal skins. You know what that picture's in the Bible? That he clothes us and covers our shame with white robes of Jesus' righteousness. You walk into church this morning. Some of you probably walked in in your heart ashamed of what you said to your family this week, of what you thought in your head this week, of what came out of your mouth this week, or what you didn't do that you ought to have done. Anybody ever felt shame? Here's the great hope, that God cares even about your shame, that God covers your shame and that in Jesus Christ, he is not ashamed to call you his brothers. And he raises you up as his own 
loved ones. Isn't that great? Have you ever had anybody embarrassed to identify with you? I've done that all my life. <laughs> Especially enjoyed it when my kids were teenagers. <laughs> I had an old Oldsmobile that I used to pick them up at school, and they just hated it. And I pulled right up front. <laughs> Cutlass Supreme, the ugliest car you could ever imagine. Sorry, Dad, if you're listening, it was my dad's car. But, you know, it became ugly. <laughs> but, you know, you, you, you pull in and you think, there's a lot of fun. No, there's no fun in walking around with the marker on your head. I'm the one who ruined the world. Imagine Adam. I'm the one who brought the curse. I'm the one who failed. Can I tell you this this morning? If you walked into Waterbrook and said, I am the one, God will receive you because of Christ, forgive you and accept you and delight in you and love you and he will not bring it up again. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And finally, at the end, what does he do? He drives them out of the garden. And so you know what's happening right now? All of us want to get safely home. The danger for us is we try to make it safe here. So we're not going to go into the mission of God. Because we want to get close. We're, we're aching for home. We're longing for Eden. We want to get back to that place. Guess what? There is no place here called home. We're on a mission. We're being sent out. We're gone into all the world. My dear friends, there's no parking it. There's no placing it. Have you found that? If you're going to try to quarantine your little life and find that place, don't you have your dream place if I can finally get to this place in my life where I can stay at this point? I have heard so many times in my life and ministry people thinking, when I got here, I thought it'd be a lot easier. Why is it still hard? Right? Here's the answer. Because this ain't home. But we're on our way home. And he has driven them out because our home for now is in Jesus Christ. And our home is with the people of God, his church. And our home is in his coming. Sam, is there a quote on the next slide? Here's Randy Elkhorn. He's really good on heaven. He says, never forget Jesus is king. Never forget your home is in another world. Never forget your father will be waiting to see you again. So I've shared this with you guys about my kids. We're all over the place. And, um, you know, we, we really miss each other. So I'm thankful for FaceTime and all of that. But um, we have an agreement that we're not going to settle in together till we get home. And so we always are tempted to say, wouldn't it be nice to live a little closer, be around a little longer, have more opportunities, and then we look at our missions and our ministry and our schedule and all of that, and then we remind each other of this. We're on a mission. There's a day of rest. There's a place of rejoicing. There's an Eden coming, but not yet. I don't want my kids to come home to me I want them to go home to Jesus. That's where I want them to go. That's where I want you to go. Doesn't that change everything? What is Genesis 3 meant to teach a people being launched out into the world? Genesis 3 says, trust the God who's called you and his word to do his work in and through you. Let the God of the word do the work of God in your life. So let's pray together. Spend a little time just for a moment praying. Can you pray quietly? I have the worship team. They'll lead us in song in a second here, but I just want you, there's a sheet there. If you have any needs, if you want to help us with any of these things, if you want to, I mean, that one of the simple applications here to pray about is, are you reading your Bible? How can you trust God to do his work if you're not listening to God in his word? I don't mean that as a guilt thing. I just think that's us. 
What's God said to you? What fear, what anxiety? Let's pray together. And so, Heavenly Father, I thank you for our church, and I thank you, dear God, for it's a little longer worship today with communion and so on, but communion was precious today. Thank you, dear God, for the sweet savoring of the forgiveness of Christ, the reminder that we have that he's died to save us. Heavenly Father, we're, we're tempted to try to get back to Eden in our own strength. We're, we're trying to make the world safe for ourselves. Father, Satan will come over any wall that we'll make, but he cannot come over Jesus, who is our refuge, our fortress, and our strength. So would you, dear God, now cause your people to rejoice that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Will you cause us to rejoice that you will never leave us nor forsake us? And will you launch us into your ministry with those promises and assurances anchored in the cross? If you didn't spare your own son but delivered him up for us all, how will you not along with him freely give us all things? Father, Jesus is everything. We thank you. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about our church, times, and events coming up, go to www.waterbrook.church.